Good morning, friends. Isn't it great to be at a church where we can do that together? We come together, pray, opens God's, open God's word together. This is what it means to go through the basic practices that nourish and sustain our lives and what a joy it is to be able to do it this morning now as we turn to God's word. Let's get into the sermon. There are a lot of things to get excited about every December and I'm gonna give you one that maybe you haven't thought about before. I came across an article in The Guardian uh, magazine this last week and it pointed out that every December the major English dictionaries release their word of the year. I know, exciting, isn't it? But they noticed something new and unique about this year in comparison to past years because in past years, the words that these, ex these, these dictionaries select and announce usually don't have any kind of correlation with each other. But this year, it was a different matter. Let me show you what I mean. Merriam-Webster was one of those dictionaries. It came up with the word authentic. The Cambridge Dictionary came up with hallucinate. And the Collins Dictionary came up with a word that's not even a word, AI. These are dictionaries. Let's let them define what they mean by it. So authentic, Merriam-Webster said, not false or imitation, real, actual. Authentic is a really big buzzword in our culture right now. It's a word that a lot of people talk about, the desire to want to be our authentic selves. Hallucinate, meanwhile, is like the opposite, right? To see or hear something that does not exist. And then AI, what is that? Artificial intelligence, a type of computer technology which is concerned with making machines work in an intelligent way, similar to the way the human mind works. That's, that's great. I don't know that we want to do that. <clears throat> Some of you know this already because you work in the tech industry, but all three of these words actually have to do with AI. AI has created a situation where now we can go to computer technology and request information find images, get videos, all kinds of different formats, and we don't know whether we're getting is actually reliable, trustworthy. We don't know whether it's authentic. In fact, the word hallucinate now is used to describe what happens with artificial intelligence when it produces false information and can even back up that false information with false resources and citations. It's said to be hallucinating. All of this the Guardian observed, which I'm glad they did because I would have never caught it, but they summarized it as a fear that's an undercurrent in our culture right now. And they describe it this way. They said that we're getting very good at pretending to be real. We're getting very good at pretending to be real. Now this is potentially a problem in our society, but how about as Christians? Is it possible that maybe we could be caught in a situation where we ourselves are pretending to be real? Jesus asked a very penetrating question 2,000 years ago to a group of people who were claiming to be his followers. And he said to them back then, he said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? If you're joining us for the first time, let me just say welcome to you. We are in week four of a new series, 
guess it's not new anymore, week four, of a series called Questions Jesus Asked. We're looking at the questions that Jesus, the master teacher, asked his disciples, the people who followed him, the crowds who went with him. Jesus was a master teacher who used questions to expose and explain truth. This is our question this morning. Why do you call me Lord and do not do what I tell you? People have called Jesus a lot of things across the centuries. They call him teacher. They call him a sage. They call him rabbi. Some even call him a prophet. All of these are terms that we might just call terms of admiration for who Jesus is. Jesus is not interested in our admiration this morning. Some people, hopefully many of us in this room, would call Jesus our savior the one who has done for us what nobody else could do, the, one, the thing that we cannot do for ourselves by rescuing us from our own sins. We call him savior, but that can be a term of gratitude. That can be a term of being appreciative, but that's not the question for this morning either. Instead, the issue is about Lord, which is a question about authority. When you call someone Lord, that shows that they have authority over your life. And to call Jesus Lord means that he has authority over all of life. Disciples are people who live their lives under the authority of Jesus. That's what a disciple is. And to call Jesus Lord is a really big deal. Paul in Romans chapter 10 says this. He says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved because it's with the heart that one believes and is justified. Justified is just a legal term, meaning that you have been declared righteous, not guilty by God. It's with the heart that one believes and is justified and it's with the mouth that one confesses and is saved. There's two different things going on here, a matter of our mouth and a matter of our heart. But it's possible that our heart can get out of step with our mouth. Our mouth can jump ahead of where our heart actually is. But still to say Jesus is Lord is no small ordinary thing. Paul says this as well in a different letter, this time to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he says to a bunch of people who at one time were not worshipers of Jesus, they were pagans in a very pagan city. He said, you know that you were pagans when you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. What he means there is that no one can see and recognize and understand that Jesus is Lord apart from God revealing it to him. No one can understand that Jesus has this authority over our lives unless the Holy Spirit reveals it to her. So when Jesus comes up to a group of people and says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say, we might wonder how somebody can get into that kind of predicament to begin with. First of all, the gospel message is something that has to be expressed. The gospel message is something that's communicated with our mouths. And because of that, it's possible that the gospel message can be distorted in the way that it is explained. 
it's possible that the gospel message can be miscommunicated in some way or that the fullness of it isn't quite understood by the person who hears it. It's possible at times where somebody explains the gospel as being really heavy on God's grace, which it is. God's grace is at the forefront, at the centerpiece of the gospel message. But if that is not also accompanied by an understanding of God's authority in our lives, then we will not grasp the fact that God's grace means that we live underneath his authority. It's possible that that's one reason why somebody could get into the situation behind the question that Jesus asks. But another possibility, maybe the most likely possibility for us this morning, is that there's a rival authority in our lives. Not that we're trying to choose between do we follow the God of the universe or do we follow this other pagan God over here? Not do we follow Jesus or do we follow this other person, but the rival authority in our lives is us. Our lives are a progression of learning to give up, learning to let go of the authority that we crave over our own lives, the control that we wanna have over our relationships, over our marriages, over our singleness, over our children, over our finances, over our career. Life following Jesus is a life of learning to let go of those things. And if we don't, it sets up these absurd situations. Dallas Willard was a philosophy professor at the University of Southern California, and he writes about using very colorful, provocative language, something that he calls vampire Christianity. Here's what he says about that. He says, one in effect says to Jesus, I'd like a little of your blood, please, but I don't care to be your student or have your character. In fact, won't you just excuse me while I get on with my life and I'll see you in heaven? Obviously, that is an absurd kind of situation where Jesus could be our savior but not be our Lord. But yet, isn't that the struggle that we find ourselves in so often? Where we would call on him as savior with gratitude for that, but struggle to call him Lord of our lives. But is it even possible for us to do this? Is it even possible that we would give Jesus control over the greatest need that we have in life, but yet not give him authority over those lesser areas of life? Again, Dallas Willard helps us here where he says, you can't trust him without believing that he was right about everything and that he alone has the key to every aspect of our lives here on earth. But if you believe that, you will naturally stay just as close to him as you can in every aspect of your life. In the next verse, Jesus shows us what it's like to stay just as close to him as we can in every aspect of our life. Let's look at verse 47. Jesus says, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. Notice those three key steps in here. Coming to Jesus, hearing his words, and then doing them, living them out. Every Sunday morning, just like this morning, this is what we want to be about. We want to be about, as a church, coming around Jesus. Jesus says, wherever two or more are gathered in my name, there am I with them. 
We want to do this in all of our life groups, in all of our classes, in all of our Bible studies. Every time we gather together, we want to be a people gathering around Jesus to hear from his word. This isn't about hearing from me. This isn't about hearing from anybody else who might stand up here on the, on the platform. But this is about hearing from God and hearing his word. And this morning we're reading a passage that's straight from Jesus anyways. This is a, a remarkable thing to just hear Jesus' words to us. When I talk to people who maybe are newer to Calvary, they often comment on how appreciative they are that this is a church where we open up God's word on a week in and week out basis. That's one of the strengths of our church that we try to prioritize God's word as the authority for teaching in our lives. But that's part of the reason why Calvary is also a dangerous place to be. Because this is a church where we love to learn, we love to grow in our knowledge and learn more about Jesus' teaching and what he said it's possible that we could be a people that stops short of this third and final step of doing. That we would be a people who gather together and we hear and we learn and we fill our heads with information. But if we don't execute on that information, if we don't put it into action, into practice, then we're missing out. In fact, we're gonna get in just a few minutes to the contrast that Jesus sets up. If you look at verse 49, the first part of it, you see that Jesus is contrasting this with one who hears and does not do them. The doing makes all the difference here. The difference between somebody who comes to Jesus as the Lord of his, the Lord of his life and somebody who comes to Jesus and just expresses gratitude or expresses admiration for Jesus but who isn't actually doing what Jesus says is in this very aspect of doing. This is a hallucination in a person's life where somebody would say, Jesus, you're the Lord of my life, but just leave me alone while I live my life. That is a hallucination where Jesus is in fact not truly the Lord at all. That's why James says in chapter one, says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. When we look at the question of Jesus, why do you call me Lord and not do what I tell you? It is a question about authority. Disciples are people who do what Jesus says, who act on what Jesus says, who responds to what he commands them. But it's not only that. This is also a question about our assumptions. It's about our assumptions about who God is and what his commandments entail, what it's like to be a disciple and to begin with. But to see that, we need to back up to the broader context of what's going on here. Because we might wonder, what does Jesus actually have in his mind when he says, why do you not do what I tell you? What is he telling them to do? And to see that, we need to back up. So we're gonna zoom out a little bit to the broader context of the passage. You may be aware of this already, but this is coming at the end of the most famous block of teaching from Jesus. Matthew has a parallel account as well, Matthew five through seven. 
They're called the Sermon on the Mount. Here, this is a, a shorter, more condensed version in Luke's gospel. But it is the same kind of principles, the same kind of teaching from Jesus. So that some of you even wondered if this is just a ref, two different versions of the same teaching that Jesus gave. Or maybe perhaps Jesus gave this same teaching on multiple occasions. Either way, what we're reading here is at the very heart of Jesus' instruction to his followers. And here's what he says in verse 27. I say to you who hear, remember, we come to Jesus, we hear what he has to say, and then we do it. I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to him who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. There have been a lot of charismatic figures in history. A lot of leaders, a lot of teachers who have said a lot of radical things. I would argue that there's nothing more radical than this teaching here from Jesus. This is the most radical thing that we could possibly be taught. Love your enemies? You don't love your enemies. You stay away from your enemies. You, you want to put as much distance between them and you as you possibly can. Talking about blessing those who curse you, you don't want to do that. You don't want to bless those. You want to come up with a good comeback. You want to try to get even with those people. Lend to people who aren't going to pay you back? What person in their right mind would want to do that? This is the most radical teaching of Jesus. In fact, we might even say it's a different word. It's not radical. It's impossible. How can we possibly live this out? Well, it turns out that Jesus is all about the impossible. Because if we zoom out even further on this, we see what has happened before Jesus began to teach in the first place. Going back to verse 17, it says this. He came down, Jesus came down. He's just selected the 12 disciples. And he comes down with those 12 and he stands on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples. So more of his followers in addition to the 12. And a great crowd of people from all over Israel. And they came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him. For power came out from him and healed not some of them, not a few of them, not many of them, but healed them all. Jesus is demonstrating the impossibility of his kingdom. He's demonstrating the power of his kingdom. And now he's describing to his would-be followers what the practices of his kingdom are all about. So when he says, love your enemies, he's talking about what his kingdom life is all about. That it is a kingdom where you love your enemy, where you, you bless those who curse you, it's a place where you lend to people who have no shot at repaying you back. That's no problem because you're in God's kingdom. And the point is that you are not to blend in and live your life the way all of the rest of the world is living. When we call Jesus Lord, it means that we are committing to a life that is out of step with the rest of the world around us. 
he makes that point, in fact, if we keep reading on in his teaching, where he says this next. He says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to get back the same amount. Jesus says that loving the lovable is completely unremarkable. Blessing those who are gonna bless you back is completely unremarkable. Lending to people who are gonna pay you back is completely unremarkable. Everybody does that. Who cares? If you call Jesus Lord and you do what he tells you to do, you're going to be doing things that no one else is doing. That's part of what it means to live in his kingdom so when he's asking the disciples, why do you not do what I tell you? This is what he's talking about. These are the kinds of habits, the kinds of practices. And then he summarizes it. And he says this, but love your enemies. We read that. Do good. We read that. And lend, expecting nothing in return. Yes. And your reward will be great and you you will be sons of the most high for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil be merciful as your heavenly father is merciful so when we say that this is a question about our assumptions what I mean by that is that this questions our assumption about who God is as the one who is calling us to do what he says. Is he a taskmaster in your mind? Because if he's a taskmaster, you are not going to want to do what he says. I think it was A.W. Tozer who said, what comes to mind when you first think about God is the most important thing about you. Another scholar, Tim Chester, says, nothing matters more than the way you think about God. If you think about God as a tyrant, then you'll keep him at arm's length as you would feel like a slave yourself. But the description in here is a description of a God who wants to reward us greatly. He wants to not necessarily satisfy your strongest cravings, your strongest longings, but he wants to satisfy your deepest longings. The things that genuinely will give you the sense of satisfaction and purpose and love that you need, that you crave in your life and you may not even know how to get it, that's what is found when we actually live according to God's kingdom purposes. Your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High, not servants of the taskmaster, but sons of the Almighty God. And we just prayed about this, acknowledging this before the sermon, that he is merciful, he is kind. One of the most re repeated phrases about God in the Bible is that he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is who our God is. And if we don't have this vision of him in our minds when we hear about him as our Lord, 
and the one who calls us to do what he tells us, then we will struggle to do what he tells us. But if he comes to us with the authority of a loving father, then we know that whatever he asks of us is for our absolute best because he loves us. This makes all the difference about how we think of Jesus as our Lord. So this is a question about authority because disciples are people who do what Jesus says. It's a question about our assumptions about God because disciples are also people who trust in the goodness of God. But it's also a question about our readiness. Let's look at the rest of the passage now. Jesus says this, I will show you what this person is like who, who comes to me, who hears my teaching and who does it. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and it could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. And when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. There are two different builders being compared, right? One looks spectacular. It's so expedient. It goes up fast and impressive. It's, the neighbors are probably blown away by how quickly this guy was able to get it up off the ground. And the other situation though, the neighbors are probably snickering as they're walking by, wondering why the person is just digging in the dirt. Is he building a bunker or is he building a house? Why is he just playing in the dirt so much? See, when we have Jesus as our Lord, we operate with a different perspective, a different outlook, a different mindset about the course of our lives and the course of all of history. Because we know we know that a life that is not well built is a life that will eventually crumble. People have wondered, is this referring to a kind of calamity that is part of like the storms of this life, which we know there are plenty to choose from, given relationship problems, health problems, financial problems, whatever it might be. There are plenty of storms in this life that can knock us off balance, that would threaten to tear us down in our lives. But it's likely that this is pointing to something even beyond that, to the ultimate calamity, the ultimate storm that we might face, which is the storm of God's coming judgment. It's not a fun thing to talk about. It's not a fun thing to mention. But for the disciple, God's coming judgment is no problem. Because for the disciple, the one who builds his life or her life off of the firm foundation of obeying Jesus' commands, the storm is no problem whatsoever. The storm is something that sure, it comes, it happens, but the house cannot be shaken. The author of Hebrews writes about a coming kingdom that cannot be shaken. And that is the, the same kingdom that our lives can be a part of when we grasp this teaching moment from Jesus that our words matter, our words matter, but it's our actions that declare whether Jesus is our Lord. 
Our words matter, but it's our response to Jesus' commands that declare whether he is truly our Lord. Our words matter, but it's our obedience to Christ that demonstrates to the world whether Jesus is truly our Lord. A life that is built off of what he teaches is a life that comes under his authority, that knows and trusts in his goodness, and that flourishes even in the face of the greatest storm. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word that teaches us, that gives us great hope, Lord, that guides our lives and reminds us of what a life looks like lived under your lordship. God, I pray we would, we would just be encouraged by the image of your goodness, of your greatness in this passage. Remember that, remembering that you are that loving father who cares for us, that you want what is truly best for us, Lord, and you you have a purpose for our lives, Lord, that we would live in according to your commandments, according to the ways of your kingdom. And then as we do that, we would have a life that cannot be shaken as we trust in you. God, would you give us the grace to understand exactly what this looks like at this time in each one of our lives. And Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit at work within us, would you just equip us to be able to live it out? We pray this all for your glory and in your name, amen.